You're listening to the Eastside Church Sermon Podcast Series. We are a United Methodist congregation in East Atlanta Village. We seek to be creative, historic, inclusive, and justice-oriented. We are thrilled that you found our podcast, and if you'd like to learn more about our community, visit our website at eastsideatl.org. From Matthew's Gospel. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud, a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Be seated. More than 30 years ago, in a church that was just a little north of Atlanta, the congregation experienced the loss of one of its children, a three-year-old who drowned in a lake on a holiday weekend. Extended family had gathered for a picnic. The child fell into the murky water, and in an instant he was gone. His parents were devastated. The church was in mourning, and his sister, who was only a couple of years older than he, was struggling to make sense of what had happened. The following week, I went to visit with the mother, whose grief, of course, was all-consuming. She'd barely even begun to comprehend the depth of the tragedy that they faced or the pain that was ahead of them. Her words, when she spoke, had the flavor of salty tears. And that's when Sam's sister came in to share with us some news. Sam is with Jesus. I know it. I know it. That's right, I said. Sam is with Jesus. Even as I wondered about what kind of mental picture this child was attaching to her words, I wondered if Sam was now one of the children surrounding Jesus in a picture book Bible. She repeated the words a second time with some urgency. Sam was with Jesus. I know it. He told me. 
Who told you, we ask. Sam, she said. Last night I saw him in my room. He came to my bed and he told me he was okay and was with Jesus. That was one of the many moments in ministry when I was at a loss for words. I don't remember exactly what I said to her. I'm sure that I affirmed her experience. She was a child. Her entire life had been turned upside down. And besides, it was very clear to me that her mother was comforted by the story. But all these years later, I still remember the simple words of her childlike faith. I saw Sam in my room, and he told me he was okay. Now, I could come up with a lot of possible and plausible explanations for what happened. Maybe it was a trauma playing itself out in her dreams. Maybe it was an attempt to find some meaning in the stories that she knew from Sunday school. Or maybe it was even some kind of childlike logic. If pets die and go to heaven, and Jesus dies and lives in heaven, then since Sam has died, he must have gone to heaven. And to a little girl, that would all make sense. But in the end, it wasn't the explanation that mattered to her. What mattered was the vision, the distinct impression that she had that Sam had stood in her doorway and had given her a message that could hold her just a little bit steady while the world around her fell apart. In the ninth chapter of Matthew's Gospel, the relationship between Jesus and his closest followers has started to undergo a little bit of a seismic shift as the question of Jesus' identity begins to come into focus. The disciples have been given power and authority to tame demons, and they've set out to proclaim God's kingdom. Herod, the ruler, has gotten wind of all their success, and he's puzzling over who Jesus might be. An enormous crowd has been fed with just a few loaves and some fish. And Peter, when confronted by Jesus with the question, who do you say that I am, speaks his reply, you are the Messiah of God. And so you can almost see all of the disciples kind of finger-snapping their excitement at who Jesus is. But then the conversation takes an uncomfortable turn. Jesus starts talking about suffering and death and a cross. And even the mention of an ultimate resurrection isn't enough to stem the tide of the disciples' resistance to what is a most unsettling message. By, by definition, a Messiah is one who's strong, someone who's powerful. 
If Jesus is who he claims to be, then his words about suffering and death, well, that can't be true. And if God is God, then a cross makes no sense. Bad things don't happen to God's people when God is the one in charge. And so the stage is set at that point in the story for a grand moment of illumination. When Peter and James and John go with Jesus to the top of that mountain, a vision begins to unfold. Jesus' face, it says, shone like the sun. His clothes became a dazzling white. He's talking with the most beloved figures of the faith. Moses, the giver of the law. Elijah, the prophet. And they appear as heavenly beings, brilliantly ephemeral, not all conformed to earthly limitation. And just for a moment, just for a moment, they begin to think maybe it's true. Maybe Jesus is going to march into Jerusalem and confront the forces of evil and win the day. The pieces start to fall into place. Past, present, future, it all starts to swirl into one until time is no longer linear. A commanding voice speaks from a cloud and a new transcendent reality is revealed. This is my son, the beloved one. Now listen and pay attention. It's no wonder that Peter wanted to build a monument. None of them had ever seen anything quite like this before. You know, visions are fleeting things. They're sacred moments they refuse to conform to our rational expectations. We reach out, we try to grab it, and we find that they're quickly gone. The disciples, whose collective fear had taken over, blink their eyes, and now they only see Jesus. Life picks up right where it left off. They gather up their belongings. They follow their leader back down the mountain and into Jerusalem. But the vision, the vision that's come to them on the heels of all of that talk about suffering and death, it lingers. It lingers to raise them up on the wings of faith, and to offer them a tiny little clue, even if they don't yet recognize it, about resurrection on the other side of death. Visions. When they're embraced, they have power to convey gentle reassurance, even while the suffering and the death are present. What we learn from the vision is that neither the suffering nor the death is final. These are the kind of transcendent moments that can help us endure whatever it is that life sends our way. The kind of transcendent moment that helped Sam's big sister deal with her new reality all those many years ago. 
You know, one of the continuing theological discussions of the modern era is rooted in a tension between the Jesus of history and what we would call the Christ of faith. It's a complex discussion, but the basic question is something like this. When we open up our Bibles, how can we know? How can we know which sayings and events are really connected to a man called Jesus? And which are the stories that grew out of the experiences of those who followed? It's the same question that Sam's sister was inviting me to entertain on that Tuesday afternoon. The question of the relationship between truth, with a capital T, and facts, the things we can prove. The transfiguration is an example of that kind of story that can fuel this kind of debate. It's a story that, like the vision itself, can't be explained. And if we try to grab hold of it, if we try to subject it to the evaluation criteria of the facts, then it's going to evaporate right in front of us. We can wonder about it. We can question. We can trust. We can ask what's going on. We can embrace it. We can deny it. But we will never, ever be able to prove what happened on that mountain. And in the end, the proof isn't what matters. What matters is the story challenges us to rethink our own answer to the question that brought Jesus and those three disciples to the mountain to begin with. Who do we say that Jesus is? Was he a prophet? Was he a teacher? Was he an example, an exceptional human being, the Jesus of history? Or was he the decisive representative of God among us, the Christ of our faith? John Douglas Hall suggests that until the church itself is able to embrace Jesus with a leap of faith, it will lack the confidence that it needs to take up its real mission in the world. Because no argument about the facts of the story can do away with skepticism that stands in the way of somebody else's decision to believe. But if we invite the mystery, if we invite the mystery of God into our lives, if we try our very best to live as if we are changed and transfigured people, clear about our calling, intentional in our spiritual formation, and resolute in our mission to the world, then we can move in the direction that God intends us to go. Transfiguration gives us a glimpse of what's possible. It allows us to hold on to the belief that wherever there is joy, Wherever there's challenge, wherever there is suffering, wherever there is peace, there also is God. Or to say it just another way, when the church allows itself to be transfigured, then the whole world 
becomes holy ground. Amen. Good morning, everyone. My name is Bria. I use she, her pronouns, and I have the honor of doing our prayers of the people this morning. If you've been here before, when I have done the prayers of the people, then you might know that I'm going to invite us to do some deep breathing. If deep breathing is not something that's accessible for you, that's okay. Instead, just pay attention to the natural flow of your breath, and particularly pay attention to that moment of stillness that happens in between your breaths, like at the end of you breathing out, before you breathe in. Um, for those who are able to do deep breathing, we are going to do deep inhale in through our nose. We're going to do a deep exhale out through our mouth. And I'll invite us to do that a couple of times. So would you breathe with me? Deep breath in. Exhale. Let's do one more deep breath in. And exhale. And one last deep breath in and an exhale. Throughout this prayer, you might hear me say, Lord, in your mercy, and then I invite you to respond with, hear our prayer. Let's pray together. I've felt lost this week. I've felt helpless. I've felt purposeless like I've been drifting on the open ocean and awoken once again feeling desperately thirsty and knowing that I'm far from shore. How many times have I felt like this? How many times have I forgotten my way? How many times have I needed you? Lord, in your mercy, your prayer. God, your church has been shattered your creation has been pillaged and your children have been murdered. And we have cried out for you, but you've felt indiscernible. Like your truths have been hidden behind the clouds for far too long, and all around us are impersonators begging for our trust and attention. How many times have we felt like this? How many times have we forgotten our way? How many times have we needed you? Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God, your glory is described as fire. Refine our wills so that we may know your truth. Melt away the coldest corners of our hearts so that we may love fully, and may your warmth be present in our lives. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God, your glory is described as light. Illuminate our paths so that we may follow you, shine in the darkest places of our spirits so that we may be known, and may your glow be seen in our lives. Lord, in your mercy. Amen. I now invite everyone to share in our communal prayer. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart, we have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. And we have not loved our neighbors. And we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience. 
Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I now invite everyone into a moment of silent confession. Friends, hear the good news. Christ died for us when we were yet sinners, and that proves God's love for us. In the name of Christ, you are forgiven. In the name of Christ, you are forgiven. Amen. Here's your homework this week. Um, This experience on the mountain is to get us ready to begin the journey through Lent and to Easter. And the way that we need to begin that is together here on Wednesday evening at seven o'clock. So your homework this week is to try to make it possible in your calendar to be here at seven for our Ash Wednesday service as we begin this season of Lent. And now I would invite you to go in peace and in the true love of God who has created us God who has redeemed us, and God who will sustain us this day and through the week to come. Amen. that you've enjoyed this week's message and we look forward to connecting with you soon. If you'd like to experience our full church services, you can find them at youtube.com slash eastsidechurchatl. And if you'd like to support the work we're doing here at Eastside, you can find our giving portal at our website, eastsideatl.org. Be well.